Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you long to get a finish ready surface using only a hand plane? Do you struggle when it comes to working with long stock? Are you curious whether shoulder planes are worth the expense? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 26 of the show for May 17th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Hugo Bellargen, Scott Runnels, and Mark Benson. Thank you all for signing up on Patreon to support the show. And thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support. Without you guys, the uh, show would just would not be possible. And also thanks to Gary Wiskowski, who made a very generous donation through PayPal. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, You'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only video episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. Um, or you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal, just like Gary did. So as you might be able to hear in the background, hopefully you can't, but uh, I don't know how well my microphone's picking it up, but you you may be able to hear that it is absolutely raining like crazy here in the mountains and supposed to for like the next week or so. Uh, so it's just crazy rain and thunder and flooding and all kinds of stuff going on, but, uh, hopefully it won't be an issue after today's episode because, uh, we passed our rough inspection on the new cabin. Uh, we have done most of the insulation that we need to do, and we are now closing up the interior walls of the cabin. So, um, with all of the inspections other than the final done, um, I have started the process of actually moving my shop up to the basement of the cabin. It's just a temporary move, um, you know, for the time being, but it's going to allow me to get out of this, this rundown, dilapidated shed that I've been using for the last few years, uh, which will, you know, free me from sharing the space with the, the rodents and the wasps and the yellow jackets and everything else that gets into this shed through all the holes in the siding and everything else. And uh, it will also be a much more climate-controlled space, even though there's no uh, climate control in there right now. Um, you know, it's a, it's a full, it's a basement with a full eight-foot ceiling, and uh, being, I would say, at least five feet, five to five and a half, yeah, probably about five feet uh, below ground. Only about three feet of the basement is probably above grade. Um, it stays just about the same temperature uh, year-round. Uh, it can get pretty cold in the winter, you know, without any heat in the house, but uh, hopefully by this winter, you know, definitely by this winter, we will be in the house and there will be heat, so it won't be that big of a deal. But for now, for the summer at least, uh, the the basement of the shop should stay in the, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, and uh, I will be moving the podcast gear up to the cabin and podcasting from there the next show. So uh, while it may be a little echoey for a little while, um, at least we won't have to deal with a lot of the outside noise interference from rain and wind and, and other things like that because I will be in a uh, a much more sealed up space for that. So I'm, I'm excited about moving the shop. I think it's going to be a, be a nice change for me. So I got some feedback this week from David Perrot. Um, David says, <clears throat> thanks for the podcast on hammer veneering. I've been interested in hammer veneering for a while. What about hammer veneering on a curved surface? I have a cedar chest as a veneer repair project. The base of it is slightly curved. Does the same technique work on curved surfaces? So I have not done hammer veneering on curved surfaces myself, but I have seen it done, and I have also seen plenty of um, antique pieces and period pieces uh, that have curved fronts. Um, I mentioned my friend uh, Frank Fucolo in the, the last episode who actually taught me how to hammer veneer. Um, and he's done some bow front pieces that he has hammer veneered. And, um, you know, they they 
come out just fine as long as you're not talking about a super severe bend that the, the veneer is just not going to want to take. Um, hammer veneering will work fine on a gently curved surface like a bow front chest or, or something like that. And there are a lot of period pieces that support um, you know, the fact that that hammer veneering works on a curved surface. So absolutely, I'd say uh, you know, give it a try. Uh, again, just make sure your glue is, is good and hot. Um, and you've got lots of working temperature and you can keep a, uh, like a hairdryer or a heat gun nearby, warm up the substrate before you go to do the, your hammer veneering. That'll help a little bit too, to keep the glue from gelling so fast. Um, and then, you know, same procedure. I would use the same procedure as, uh, as I would for something flat. And if I needed to, I could, you know, heat up the areas, spot heat areas with the, uh, with the heat gun if uh, things aren't going down perfectly. So you can either lift it and get a little bit more glue under there or whatever you need to do uh, just to get things down and, and help you to extend that working time by heating things up with the heat gun as you're working. Uh, and I think uh, the hammer veneering should work just fine on your slightly curved uh, base of the chest. So let's get into our listener questions. The first one is an email from Brian Steinberger. Brian says, I'm curious about your thoughts on planing versus sanding in preparation for finishing. Do you always leave a hand plane surface or do you scuff sand before finishing? Does it depend on what finish you're using? So the old debate about, you know, really good woodworkers uh, not using anything but, uh, but a hand plane. Not that I'm a really good woodworker, but um, it's a question that I get, you know, pretty frequently. Um, and it does depend. It depends on a bunch of factors, actually, not just what finish I'm using, but it also depends upon the piece. The, the thing to keep in mind is that not all pieces are able to be finished with a hand plane surface. Um, if you make anything with any type of curved surface, typically you're not going to be able to finish that with a hand plane. You're either finishing it with a, a scraper of some sort, or maybe a spoke shave, um, if you're lucky. Uh, but chances are you're going to have a different surface on that curved surface than you will your flat hand plane surfaces. Everybody likes to talk about finishing right from the hand plane, but what those folks don't ever seem to talk about is the fact that hand planes are used to make flat surfaces. So if it, Anything, if everything you ever make is flat and straight and you never have anything but a flat surface, then yeah, maybe you can always finish your stuff off a hand plane. Um, you know, if I'm making something like a, you know, sort of a shaker style um, side table or something along those lines where, you know, maybe I've got straight tapered legs and my aprons are straight and my, um, the top is straight and the drawer is just a plain rectangle then yeah, maybe I can finish all of those surfaces with a hand plane uh, before I apply my finish and I don't have to do any sanding. But chances are the type of furniture that I build is going to have some surfaces in it that are not flat or not straight. So those surfaces cannot be finished with a hand plane. So at some point I'm going to need to pick up a different tool to touch those surfaces, whether it be a scraper, whether it be um, a spoke shave, sandpaper, rasps, files, what have you. So in terms of the, the project itself, if I'm going to, if I have surfaces that I can't hit with a hand plane, then what I want to do is I want to finish all the surfaces to the same degree with the same technique so that I get the same, um, so that I get the same effects of the finish, right? Because while the, the effects may be subtle, certain finishes look different on a hand plane surface than they do on a scraped surface or a sanded surface. So if you want your, your finish look to be consistent, again, with certain types of finish, then you need to finish all of your surfaces, prepare all of your surfaces with the same type of technique, whether that be planing, scraping, or sanding. So if I can't hand plane all the surfaces, and I have to scrape some of them, then I'm scraping everything. Um, if I can't scrape all the surfaces and I have to sand something, then I'm sanding everything. So it really depends on the piece itself. It also depends on the finish. In most cases, most woods don't care how you prepare the surface 
if you are going to be finishing with a film finish, something that sits on the surface of the wood. Because after the second or third coat of that film finish, the surface that you're getting has absolutely no, nothing to do with the wood underneath it anymore. It really, what you're looking at and what you're feeling is just the film finish. So if you're using some type of varnish or if you're using a, a shellac finish, after you get the first few coats of that on, it really makes no difference how you finished, how, you know, whether you sanded or planed or scraped or whatever underneath that finish because now you're really just feeling and seeing the film finish on top of the surface of the wood. So it really doesn't matter. Now, if you're using just a straight oil finish, like a, you know, just straight linseed oil or tongue oil, and I'm not talking about a Danish oil, um, you know, or, or something, or a wiping varnish, which, you know, some people might call an oil finish. They are oil finishes, but, you know, whether it's like a Watco, like a Danish oil type finish or anything along those lines, they have resins in them, they have varnishes in them, and they are creating a film finish. Even though the manufacturer may tell you it creates a finish in the wood and not on the wood, it's creating a finish on the wood. If it's not a pure oil and it has some type of varnish on it, in it, some type of resin, it is creating a film finish on top of the wood. And after a few coats, you're not going to notice a difference. So again, most of the time, the only time that I'm, I'm I've ever really, really noticed a, a difference between like a hand plane finish and a sanded finish um, is if I'm putting, say, you know, just pure linseed oil, straight linseed oil on the surface. Then you can kind of tell the difference between hand planed and sanded. The other thing is if you're going to put any type of pigment on the surface. Um, I tend to try not to do that if I can help it. I don't like adding pigments and colors uh, to most wood because I think it just tends to muddy them up. Uh, muddy the grain and, and it hides the grain. Sometimes you have to in order to blend colors. Um, I've done it with walnut where you know you dye it first, especially kiln-dried walnut that's kind of gray when you get it. It doesn't really have that beautiful walnut color when it's kiln-dried and steamed. Um, you know, So there you might be dyeing, adding some dye first. Um, a, a plain surface and a sanded surface are going to take pigments differently. Sanded surfaces typically will hold more pigment um, and you will see, and they will get darker when you apply a stain or a dye to a sanded surface versus a hand plane surface. You'll see a color difference there. So that may be some place where you want to look at how you're preparing your surface before you prepare, before you apply that color. Um, sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes you have to sand and then apply that color. And what you can do is, you know, apply a wash coat of uh, very dilute shellac before um, before you apply your color, and that'll help. Um, you know, pieces not getting too dark. Uh, but for the most part, if you're using a film finish, it doesn't matter whether you plane, sand, scrape, whatever beforehand, um, because after those first few coats of finish. All you're really seeing on the surface is the finish anyway, and it really makes no difference how you prepared the wood. So our second question comes from Scott Adams, and Scott wants to know about shoulder planes. He says, I've been jonesing for one, but they're expensive. Do I need one? What are your experience with, experiences with them? Are there any traditional wooden planes that will trim tenon shoulders the same way? So, shoulder planes. Uh, shoulder planes are frequently confused with wooden rabbit planes, unfenced wooden rabbit planes. And if you look at the two, they are kind of designed similarly. So it's easy to confuse the two of them and think that, the, you know, the, the shoulder plane was based on the wooden rabbit plane. But the fact of the matter is they are really different tools. The wooden rabbit plane um, often came skewed, probably more often than, than straight. It's certainly uh, much, much easier to find skewed rabbit planes than it is to find a rabbit plane with a straight iron. They made them in straight irons, um, but it's much easier to find the skewed versions. I think they sold many more of the skewed versions um, and the skewed irons were just used much more frequently because they cut cleaner. But I think what, if you go back in, in the history and you look through the old books, what you will find is that skewed iron or straight iron Wood, unfenced wooden rabbit planes were not designed for trimming tenon shoulders. They were designed for trimming rabbits. 
Um, I, I always go back and reference Peter Nicholson because he has such a great description of rabbit planes in there. Um, and he specifically says, you know, that the fenced rabbit planes, like the moving Philister plane, was typically used for sinking the rabbit. It had a fence on it to get your rabbit in position. It had a depth stop to get you to close to your depth. And then you would switch to a an unfenced rabbit plane. And he says the unfenced rabbit planes are used for trimming and adjusting those rabbits. So once you get close with your fenced rabbit plane, you pull out your unfenced rabbit plane and you can plane that rabbit down to your gauge lines so that you get that rabbit exactly the size and position uh, where you want it. So he wasn't really suggesting that you rely on the fence to get everything perfect. It was more get close with the fence and the depth stop and then adjust with your unfenced rabbit plane. So that's really what the unfenced rabbit planes uh, were designed for, at least as far as Peter Nicholson's writing is concerned. Unfenced wooden rabbit planes are also bevel down tools. The irons are usually bedded at 45 to 50 degrees or so, and the iron is bedded bevel down, just like a traditional bench plane. Shoulder planes are kind of a different animal. They're usually, they usually have a low bed angle, um, you know, around 20 degrees or so, and they have a bevel up iron. Um, and the first ones that we see are, are infilled when we, when we start to see the shoulder planes. Um, and we really don't start to see them until we start to see more machines come on the scene. So um, I don't know that, that the shoulder planes were ever really designed for the same type of work that unfenced wooden rabbit planes were designed for. In fact, there really was no unfenced wooden rabbit plane that was designed for trimming tendon shoulders. Um, you know, it's my experience anyway, and I've talked to other traditional woodworkers who've been at it for a while. Um, a plane is not the most efficient way to trim tendon shoulders, honestly. The most, the most efficient way to trim a tendon shoulder is with a chisel. Um, if your tendon shoulder isn't fitting properly, because you, you know, didn't saw up to the knife line or you saw it past the knife line, the easiest way to fix that is with the chisel. If you saw it past your knife line, the best thing that you can do is to rescribe that shoulder line with a knife and a square and then use your chisel in that scribe line um, and, and cut away the excess material. works way better than a shoulder plane, way better. The problem with shoulder planes is they rely, if you're going to lay a shoulder plane flat on the cheek of a tenon, you better be darn sure that the cheek of that tenon is perfectly square to that shoulder. If it's off at all, then that shoulder plane is going to be trimming your shoulder, your tenon shoulder, out of square. So there's too many things going on. Um, you know, the shoulder plane really was designed for machine cut tenons, where you know that your cheek is parallel and to the face of the board and square to the shoulder, and you just need to take a little bit off. But if you miscut, if you're cutting your, your mortise and tenons by hand, a shoulder plane is really not going to be all that valuable for you. Um, I have one, um, and I very, very, very rarely use it, preferring to use the unfenced rabbit planes for what I use um, unfenced rabbit planes for most of the time. I recently tried to use my shoulder plane as an unfenced rabbit plane to, to trim um, a rabbit down to the gauge lines. And I felt it very, it was very awkward and, uh, and very difficult to use. There's no real easy way to hold them. You know, if you've ever used a wooden unfenced rabbit plane, it nestles and settles very nicely into your hand. The heel of the plane settles right into your palm. You don't have that with the shoulder planes. Um, the Veritas shoulder plane is a little bit better in this regard because of the way that that cap iron or, or lever cap or whatever you want to call it is shaped to kind of fit into the palm of your hand. The, the Lee Nielsen shoulder plane, which is the one that I have, just doesn't settle into the palm of your hand that way. You can't grab it from the heel of the plane like you do with a wooden rabbit plane. You kind of have to grab it over the top like you would a block plane, and it makes it very awkward to use it to actually trim a rabbit. It makes it, you know, it's fine to trim a tenon shoulder, but again, I never use an un a plane to trim tenon shoulders. I find a chisel much more 
um, much more user-friendly for that particular task. So if you're doing a lot of your work by machines, you may find a shoulder plane to be useful. But if you're more of the hand tool type um, and you're, you're really more into using your, um, your planes to trim rabbits and not so much to trim shoulders and, and you use chisels to trim shoulders because, again, it, it is just more, a more efficient way and a more effective way if you're cutting your tendons by hands. Um, if you're that type of person, you're probably not going to find a shoulder plane very useful in the long run. So I would say, no, uh, don't worry about the shoulder plane. Um, they're pretty, they're expensive as you, as you mentioned, but I really don't think you need one in a, in a, a traditional shop that's cutting their mortise and tenons by hand, because I think they're going to be more trouble than they're worth. So our next question is a voicemail from Jonathan Jongsman. He wants to know about working with long stock. Let's listen to Jonathan. Hi, Bob. Jonathan here from Minneapolis. I had a question for you about working with long stock. Um, currently working on a project that's uh, about six foot high, and there's um, dovetails on uh, the end. And cutting those dovetails and actually even transferring the, the tails to the pins on a board that long gets pretty tricky. Um, I managed to do it, um, but it was rather awkward. Um, and in the past, I've had projects, for example, I built a bed for my daughter where um, you've got bed rails that have, you know, they're maybe six, seven feet long and they have tenons on the end and cutting those tenons gets pretty tricky as well. Um, I ended up, I think, standing on a stool and um, it was not a very pleasant experience, but I managed to get it done. But I'm wondering if you have any tips or tricks on working with long stock and especially cutting joinery on the end of long stock. Thanks. So working with long stock can, can certainly pose some challenges. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, the joinery is really the big part. Planing it isn't such a big deal. You know, you just lay it flat on your bench and that's why longer benches are really great because, you know, if you've got a, an eight foot bench, you can pretty much plane stock up to about eight feet long uh, fairly easily on edges uh, faces, ends, you know, really no big deal. Uh, the problem comes, again, like Jonathan mentioned, when you want to cut joinery on the ends of those boards, uh, whether it's dovetails, mortise and tenon, what have you. So what I have done in the past is to try to get the stock off my bench and work a little bit lower. And I've had some pretty good success doing that. One of the things you can do is set up a pair of uh, low benches, saw saw benches. Uh, my saw bench and my shaving horse are about the same height, so I'll usually run the stock, you know, across both of those, and it supports it pretty well. Um, and you kind of have to get used to cutting your dovetails um, with the stock laid flat instead of vertically in a vise, and it's a, it's a different feeling um, if you. If you use Japanese saws, like pole saws for this, it's a piece of cake because you can lay your stock flat on the bench and you can saw off the end of the bench, you know, kind of on your, just take a knee off the edge of your bench and, uh, and saw straight up and down with the Japanese pole saw. You can do the same thing with a push saw, but in that case, you kind of have to get over top of the work, which means you've got to get on top of your bench which is why I prefer to use um, low benches, saw benches for that kind of work, because then I can get over the top of the work like I would with a, a long saw um, and saw my joinery that way. And again, it's a little bit awkward because you're, you're in sort of a, a weird, uncomfortable position when you're sawing, um, but it's certainly doable. For, for dovetails, it really hasn't been much of a problem, you know, sawing that way because it's a shortcut. Um, you know, you kind of start on the top corner and level your saw out as you go. Uh, if you want to prop the work up a little more, what you can do is if you've got really long stock, like six foot, like you were mentioning, and you need to cut some dovetails on the end, if you put one end of that board on the floor and prop the other end against your saw bench, the stock will kind of be propped up at an angle. Um, and you can saw your dovetails that way um, so that you're not 
having to saw you know straight down you can kind of saw down at an angle it's a little bit more comfortable but that's not going to work for um for shorter stock you know your stock needs to be kind of long for that to work out well you can brace if you brace the uh the one end like against a wall and then put the stock on your your saw bench and you can get over top of it and just put a knee on it um, that holds everything in place pretty good and you can saw your your stock that way um, it also works okay doing that for your tenons uh, you, you know you can saw the shoulders on the workbench typically it's usually not a problem using a, a bench hook because your stock is flat on the bench when it comes to sawing the cheeks there are a couple ways I've done it. You can do the same type of thing like what I just talked about for dovetails where you prop your work up on a saw bench. That becomes a little bit difficult when you need to saw the edges to you know to saw the wide parts of the tendon cheeks. Um, you can use a hand screw clamp to hold your stock up on edge and that helps. Um, the other thing you can do is saw flat. Uh, if you can learn to keep, hold your stock on your bench hook and hold your saw sideways, like flat, parallel with the bench, and you can saw out the corners that way. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, I've done it. It it can be a little bit of a, of a challenge. Um, but the neat thing with tenons is, if you've got yourself a, a rabbit plane, you can actually, if the stock is too long to saw those tenon cheeks off, if you have a bench hook, you saw your shoulders and you then you clamp or hold fast that long stock down to the bench hook um, and you can plane across the grain with a rabbit plane and get rid of most of that waste and just plane your um, your tenon cheek with everything flat on the bench um, and that works pretty good as well um, so you can give that a try in terms of transferring your dovetails you know from one side to the other if both pieces are really long that can be challenging because you've got you know the ceiling and the floor to contend with what I try to do is is do it sort of sideways so if I can put the pieces on edge um, and do it that way where you know one piece is on edge along my bench and the other piece would be on edge sticking out perpendicular um, to where to the front of the bench um, it, it's hard to kind of describe this but um, if you just think about you know putting one piece standing up on its edge on your bench and then obviously the other piece would be perpendicular to that and would either stick off the back side of your bench or off the front side of your bench um, and what I use when I'm transferring dovetails and I've, I've posted about this on Instagram and even on the, the blog before I think is um, corner clamps that were originally designed you know for frame for for mitered frames but the corner clamps work really good to hold your stock in position. And if you've got short stock, it's not a big deal, you know, to just hold it in place by hand. But when you've got really long stock, it can kind of be, uh, you know, honorary to, to deal with. But those corner clamps really help because you can put everything in position where it needs to go and throw a, cl a corner clamp or two on it. And it's going to stay there. It holds nice and firm. And then you can, you know, just lay that stock out any way you want. And mark those tails pretty easily. So, uh, for example, I mentioned laying the stock on edge on your bench top, and if you put a corner clamp on on either side and have the other piece sticking, you know, off the back of your bench or off the front of your bench, then you can just walk to the side and mark those tails um, or pins fairly easily from the other board without having to have pieces, you know, standing straight up in the air and hitting the ceiling or, or um, you know, too tall if they're hanging off the bench. So. Um, I don't know how you would do that if you didn't have some type of corner clamp. I think it would be kind of difficult to hold everything in place. I think if you had a um, like a, a tall sawhorse saw that was about the same height as your bench, you could put that out in front of your bench or behind your bench to support the end of the stock that's hanging off. And, uh, and then maybe you might be able to hold things in place by hand uh, if you if you could do it that way. Uh, that might help you, but yeah, it's, it's not easy and there's no, there's no simple answers. I don't think, um, you know, it, it really comes down to making a lot of, uh, you know, putting yourself in, in odd positions. Um, but yeah, the, the Japanese saws work well for sawing off the end of the bench. If you've got that or try and get your work lower, um, or just, you know, try and turn your work 
in a way that is going to make it easier for you to work on it or, or mark. Um, you know, just kind of have to play around with stuff until you you find a way that works. So our, our last question is another voicemail, and it comes from, I think his name is Zade. It was hard to tell on the voicemail. The voicemail was a little fuzzy. So uh, I think it's Zade, and Zade has a question on side-hung drawers. So let's listen to Zade's question. Hi, Bob. My name is Zade, and I live in Olympia, Washington. And I had a question. I was wondering if you could tell me what you know about making hanging drawers without a lot of metal hardware, pocket screws at the most. I'm looking to make hanging drawers for my workbench and also a low um, table that has staked legs. And I can't find that much information on making drawers for things that aren't tables with aprons or a chest of drawers. Um, Yeah, anything you got? Thanks so much, and thanks for the podcast. Bye. So hanging drawers were actually pretty common if you look back into very early period furniture, and I'm talking like 1600s time period when you're looking at, you know, the uh, Jacobean style furniture and, um, you know, very early William and Mary. Um, If you actually Google the term side hung drawer, you'll see some different examples of this. Essentially what you need to do is make uh, a drawer, you need to make drawer runners um, in addition. So the more traditional way we think about drawers is to ride them on some type of web frame, like in a chest of drawers um, or, you know, like a table that has aprons where you can put runners and you put this frame in the bottom and then the drawer sits on top of that frame and that's what holds the drawer in place and allows it to slide in and out. Well, prior to those frames, um, most pieces were hung, even chests of drawers and tables and things like that. The drawers were actually side hung on runners, wooden runners. And there's no reason you can't do the same thing with a a workbench or a table or anything else that you're doing. Um, In fact, I actually did a blog post. Um, It's on my old blog, on my old Logan Cabinet Shop blog. Um, And you can get there through my my new website, my current website, but I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, I put a side hung drawer on my own workbench um, and I used wooden runners and side hung drawers to do it. And there's no reason, you know, you couldn't use the same method. In fact, the workbench that I'm building now um, is going to have a drawer that is side hung from underneath the workbench top. It's not even going to be um, you know, between the aprons, like what I, I did on my current workbench. Um, in essence, what you would have is, is runners that are about, they're L-shaped. So let's say you, you create uh, a piece of wood that is maybe, I don't know, if you've got a four-inch deep drawer, let's say that piece of wood is about uh, two inches tall. And to the front the front bottom edge or front bottom face of that piece of wood, you glue on another piece that's about, you know, three quarters by three eighths of an inch thick. So now you've got this sort of L-shaped piece of wood that is, you know, three quarters of an inch thick or half inch thick, um, two inches tall, and it's got this L, this little piece sticking off the front, this runner, that's about three eighths of an inch thick by about three quarters of an inch tall. If you drill some pocket screw holes right through the the edge of that two inch tall section, you can screw that runner right up to the bottom of your workbench top. Um, in fact, it doesn't even need to be pocket screws. You know, if you just drill holes straight through those runners, um, you know, you've got two inches. So maybe you put some three and a half or, or four inch screws up through the bottom of those runners into the bottom of your workbench. And now you've got these runners that are hanging from the uh, from the bottom of your workbench. In the side of the drawer, you're going to want to use slightly thicker drawer sides for this. Um, so that you know the traditional three eighth to half inch thick drawer sides that you see in later furniture and more modern stuff to to make things look kind of delicate, just not going to work for side hung drawers because you need a groove in the side in the drawer sides to to ride on those runners. 
So I'd say go with three quarter inch thick drawer sides, and then you're going to plow a groove down the outside face of those drawer sides before you assemble the uh, the case, and that groove is going to ride in on the drawer runner that hangs from your workbench. So when you assemble the drawer, you're going to have this big three quarter inch tall by three eighth inch deep groove that's running down the side of the drawer, and that essentially is going to ride on those drawer runners. But again. Um, I'll post a link to the one that I did for my current workbench, and uh, and I, I encourage you, just Google side-hung drawers, and uh, you should find lots of photos and lots of examples of antique and period furniture um, that was built that way, and um, very common, very common in uh, early period furniture, so check that out, and I think you'll find exactly what you need. So for today's main topic, I want to talk about moving your shop. Uh, this is something that I have done, oh, let's see how many times now, One, two, three, at least four times I've moved my shop, may even be more than that. Um, so I, I've got a little bit of experience doing it, but I know it's something that a lot of folks wonder about and, and have questions about because I, you know, I see it come up as a topic on the internet quite frequently. Oh, you know, we bought a new house, you know, what do I do about moving my shop? How do I do this? So, um, just, you know, some thoughts that I have and some tips and, and I'm in the process of actually moving my shop now. Um, and granted, I'm not moving very far, uh, maybe about, you know, 500 feet up the hill to, you know, from my current shed to my new basement. But, um, you know, it's still some things that you, you need to think about and, and certain things, you know, can kind of be a pain in the butt to move. So we'll talk about, uh, moving your shop. So, you know, this is one area where those of us who primarily use hand tools are going to have a, a whole lot easier job of it than folks who have a lot of machines. Um, you know, if you've got a lot of machines to move, you really need to sit down and, and think about, you know, whether it's even worth it in some cases, depending on the, the machines that you have um, and, and your your personal budget. Um, but, you know, for those of us who primarily use hand tools, it's really not too bad. The biggest thing we have to worry about usually is a workbench. Um, and they can be fairly large and fairly heavy. But depending on the, the way you built your workbench, you know, you may be able to t disassemble it and take it down. Um, that would be a good benefit if you do have a workbench that can be disassembled, like a, a Moravian style that's only put together with uh, through tenons and wedges, where you can knock the wedges out and disassemble everything. Or if you built your um, workbench base with uh, bench bolts and you're able to disassemble the base and lay everything flat, uh, makes it a lot easier to move and transport a workbench. If on the other hand, your workbench is like mine and everything is glued together and you can't possibly take anything apart, it becomes a bit more of a challenge. Um, one of the big challenges I had with my old shop, uh, since I built the workbench in that shop in New Jersey, was actually getting the workbench out the door. Um, my workbench was eight feet long, but the shop itself was only about seven and a half feet deep. So the workbench was actually longer than the workbench, uh, than the shop was deep. Um, I built the workbench obviously along the long wall of the shop. And that was about 13 and a half feet long. But in order to get the workbench out the door, um, the door was on the long wall of the shop. So I had to turn the workbench 90 degrees to get it out the door. And in order to do this, it required two of us to be able to actually lift up one end of the workbench to almost vertical to be able to clear the wall and turn the workbench 90 degrees um, and then kind of slide it out the door as we were lowering the uh, the other end of the workbench. So uh, you kind of have to think about those types of things uh, when, you, when you've got to move large pieces. You know, it, I was almost in a situation where I either had to leave the workbench or destroy it in order to get it out. So luckily we were able to lift up one end of it as heavy as it is. We were still able to lift up one end and swing it around and get it out the door. Um, most doors aren't going to be a problem because most workbenches are about 24 inches or less. Um, and most doors are usually, you know, on the order of 28 to 36 inches wide. So getting it out the door isn't usually a problem, but, um, it could be a problem, you know, like what I had turning it if your, your space is really short. Um, but again, if you build the bench so that you can take it apart, 
that will solve a lot of those problems. Um, lifting the workbench is obviously, you know, if you've got a, a 400 pound solid oak rubo or something like that, um, it can be a problem to move things like that. Um, some things that I've found that to help are um, things like dollies. If you can get some small dollies and put them under the workbench legs and then you can roll it around, um, they will help you out immensely in moving the bench. Um, furniture slides, they make, um, we had these, I don't know if they, I'm sure they still make them. We had these little pads, these slides. They had, um, it was like a little plastic disc with a, a foam foam top. Um, the plastic was like a, a high molecular weight, very smooth, slippery plastic that would slide over carpeting. Um, and then it also came with these these bonnets, like sort of lamb's wool or, or I'm sure that wasn't lamb's wool. I'm sure it was some type of synthetic, you know, polyester fleece or something. Um, but it was, you know, like a, a, a fabric that you could slide over those plastic um, slides. And that was meant for sliding over hardwood floors. So, you know, I could put those underneath my workbench feet uh, and just push the workbench right across the uh, the hardwood floor without fear of scratching things up. Um, and it slid real nice right from my shop, right across the kitchen tile floor, right across the, uh, the uh, floor in the hallway, right out the front door and, uh, and onto the, the moving van. Um, ramps obviously are a good idea so that you can move a lot of that bigger stuff uh, up and down quite easily. Uh, as well as, you know, things like hand trucks and, and uh, appliance dollies. So what else do we have to move? Uh, well, we've got to move hand tools. Um, and believe it or not, you know, a lot of people poo-poo on um, the traditional tool chest, like what uh, Christopher Schwarz wrote about in the Anarchist Tool Chest. Um, but I have found that moving tools in a tool chest like that is so much easier than trying to move them in a wall cabinet or any other type of tool storage solution. Um, one, the chest is, you know, you're able to just pick it up with all the tools in it, which is a, a huge bonus. You usually can't do that with a wall cabinet because you've got to take everything out in order to be able to take the cabinet off the wall. So then you've got to pack everything up in in some other type of uh, container, whether it's boxes or crates or whatever, you know, plastic totes, which means you've got to take every tool, you've got to wrap every tool individually. Um, and it's actually a huge hassle when you've got a, if you've got a whole lot of hand tools to, to wrap them all up and pack them in cardboard boxes or plastic totes, um, and then reload your, you know, your hanging tool cabinet when you get to your new location. When I moved the last few times with my traditional tool chest, um, it was very easy. I picked the tool chest up, I put it on the truck, and that was it. Um, I did secure some of the sliding tills just to keep them from sliding around while we were driving. Um, you know, just put some, some painter's tape just to keep everything from sliding around. If you've got some real delicate stuff, you know, you may want to wrap a few of your tools in old towels or socks or t-shirts or, or bubble wrap or whatever. Um, and put them back in the chest just to keep things from really banging around. But, I mean, I drove a 26-foot moving truck from nine hours from my house in New Jersey uh, down here to the uh, mountains of uh, southwestern Virginia. And uh, I didn't do pretty much anything except secure the tills in the tool chest so that, that they didn't slide. Um and then pick up the tool chest and put it on the truck and keep the, you know, secure it on the truck so that it wouldn't, the chest wouldn't slide around on the truck. Um, but I didn't really have to wrap the tools. I didn't really have to do much of anything but get the chest onto the truck. Uh, and then when I got to my final destination, I take the chest off the truck and it's pretty much ready to, to work out of as soon as I took it off the truck. So, um, you know, if, if there's a possibility that you might be moving and you're thinking about what type of tool storage to build for your hand tools, um, you know, I highly, highly recommend a traditional tool chest. It's it's really fantastic option for moving. And, and being a solid wooden chest, um, you know, the thing's almost bomb-proof. So your tools are well-protected. They're not going to rust. 
they really don't move around much in there, even with all the bouncing and shifting of things inside the moving van. Uh, so yeah, they're great way to move your hand tools. Um, if you don't have that, you know, you're going to probably be, be stuck wrapping things up in old sheets and towels and t-shirts and bubble wrap and whatnot and packing it up in boxes and plastic totes and the plastic totes work real well, um, for that. Um, and then, uh, and moving things that way so that the tools don't bounce off each other and, and uh, end up damaging each other in, during the move. Uh, some of the other things that you may need to, to move, you know, finishing supplies and, and things like that. Um, I would be careful with finishing supplies because some, some highways and some roads uh, have laws against carrying those type of uh, solvents and things like that, especially if you need to go through um, underwater tunnels. If you need to go through any kind of tunnel, chances are you can't be carrying any type of flammable liquid with you in the, uh, in the truck. So if you've got solvents, flammable solvents, you may need to get rid of them at the, uh, at the local waste disposal place before you move. Um, you know, or you could, you know, if you get stopped and, and they find those on you, you could get heavily fined for carrying, uh, any type of flammable liquid or flammable solvent. If you've got to go through any time, any kind of tunnel, um, and some bridges probably are like that as well. Um, I didn't have too many nasty solvents and we weren't going through any tunnels or over any bridges that I had an issue with. So I took all of my cans and, and bottles and packed them up in a uh, plastic tote. So if anything did spill, it didn't go all over the place. Uh, in fact, I did have one shellac can that did explode on the way. Um, and it, it did end up going over all over some of the stu other stuff that was in that plastic tote, but if it wasn't in a plastic tote, it would have been a lot worse. It would have dripped all over a lot more stuff. So, uh, so yeah, make, you know, be, be careful about that kind of stuff. And then obviously, you know, small things, whether it's clamps or whatever, you know, you can throw those in boxes if they fit, but a lot of stuff is just going to end up getting thrown loosely, uh, into whatever spaces underneath the workbench or, you know, packed around other things where, wherever it's going to fit. Um, in my case, again, I'm just going to throw them in the back of my truck and, and drive them up the hill and make a couple of trips. But when we moved from New Jersey, everything just kind of went into the moving truck. Anything that wouldn't fit in boxes and uh, wasn't fragile just kind of got shoved around and, you know, maybe put on the shelf underneath the workbench or whatever. Uh, lumber can be an issue when you have to move your shop. Now, I'm not going to be moving the lumber um, currently I'm going to leave it in the shed that I'm in. And when I need the lumber, I'll come down to the shed and get it. Uh, but when we did moved from New Jersey again, I did, I didn't have a lot of lumber, but I did have some and I didn't want to leave it because it was, uh, you know, there was some walnut, there was some mahogany. So, uh, it wasn't stuff that I felt like I could just throw away and, and, and leave it there. Um, you know, if you have a lot of lumber, you may want to consider trying to sell some of it off if it's just way too much to move. If it's only a few pieces, you can just throw it on the shelf under your workbench or, or whatever. Um, but if you've got a lot, if you've got a significant quantity of lumber, you may want to consider just you know going through it and keeping some of your most prized pieces if you've got some highly figured stuff or some you know flitches or slabs or whatever. Um, and then the, the ho-hum normal stuff, maybe try and sell it off. Uh, before you leave because it's real tough to pack lumber and it you know when you've got boards that are 8 10 12 inches wide and you know 8 10 12 feet long it can really take up a lot of room and be kind of a pain in the butt to to pack that stuff in there if you've got a lot of it you could end up needing a whole separate box truck just for your lumber if you've got any significant amount um, so consider you know maybe selling some of it off and uh, just keeping the prime stuff and then, uh, of course, there's machines. If if you uh, do have some machines in your shop, you really need to think about whether it's worth it to take them or not. I've I've had friends who have moved and who have decided, you know what, it's just not worth the expense and the hassle. Uh, because in some cases, you know, if you've got some real heavy stationary machinery, uh, you may need professionals to come in and put that stuff on a truck and move it, and it could cost you thousands of dollars to have that done. Um, 
you know, if you have the ability to move your machines yourself, you could certainly save a lot of money. But I, you know, in those cases, you're probably going to need a couple of very good friends where you currently are live and a couple of really good friends where you are moving to, to help you unpack and move that stuff um, and get it off the truck. Um, lift gates, you know, most moving trucks that you can rent if you're driving yourself aren't going to have lift gates. So you're going to need to think about um, ways to get the machinery on and off the truck. Sometimes those ramps can be a little steep. And if you've got a, you know, 600 pound table saw that you've got to move, you know, it's not something you and your wife want to do by yourselves. You you really need to think about how you're going to move those things. And again, sometimes it's just easier to sell them where you are and buy new ones when you, uh, when you get to your new destination. Now, of course, not everybody is going to be able to do that. Maybe your budget just doesn't allow, or, you know, maybe you're the one of those folks who lucked into finding, uh, you know, an old 16-inch joiner or something like that that you're probably never going to ever find again in your lifetime and you really want to move it, you know, it may cost you just as much to, to move that that giant piece of machinery as it did for you to buy it in the first place. So just something to keep in mind and, and look into. But again, for those of us using hand tools, I think we have a, a pretty easy time with most of it because most of our tools are going to be pretty lightweight. And uh, you know, if you can figure out how to move the workbench, I think the rest is is pretty simple. So that's about all I have for today. It's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. Or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. And if you want your question to uh, be answered sooner on a, on a sooner show rather than a later show, I do recommend uh, either recording a voice, either uh, calling the voicemail number or recording a voice note and sending it in that way because uh, I would like to give preference to voicemail and, uh, and, and voice notes because, uh, you know, it just makes the show more interesting and put some other voices on here other than mine. So uh, if you are looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt026. In the show notes, you can find links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do all of those things in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.